0: Hi, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. The usual comprehensive running order is in the show notes, so do have a look at those for an overview of the topics we covered in this episode. But seeing as I'm so generous, I'll give you the usual teaser. In this episode, we looked in depth at Lionel Messi's departure from Barcelona, focusing on the factors behind his departure and what his departure means for Barcelona and for football more widely. In particular, we asked ourselves if Messi's departure now means that Iago Aspas of Celta Vigo is now the player with the most cultured left foot in the whole of Spain. We then turned our attention to a highly entertaining opening weekend in France, with a particular focus on Jorge Sampaoli's tactical tweaks in Marseille's riveting 3-2 win over Montpellier on Sunday night. In Italy, we looked at what has been a summer of upheaval focusing on the worrying financial situation at Inter Milan and then looking at the teams who look best placed to benefit in some way from this summer of upheaval. Notably, we looked at how Victor Osimen might thrive under new Napoli manager Luciano Spalletti. To conclude the episode, we discussed Julian Nagelsmann's start to life at Bayern Munich and considered what styles he might look to implement at the Allianz Arena. As always, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Opportunities. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. On now with the episode. Thank you for your continued support. Take care and enjoy. This is about the fourth attempt I've had at trying to Nail the start of the episode, so hopefully I can manage. Hopefully this introduction goes without incidents. I suppose before I can manage to mess up once again, I'm just going to say a warm welcome to Rudy Barlow and a warm welcome to Michael Jones. Michael, how are you?
1: Yeah, I'm okay, thank you. It's been a bit of a weird week. If you remember the first episode, those who listened, I spoke about Van Edson's knee. I found out. I'm having knee reconstruction surgery in a couple of weeks so that alongside a stolen bike and seeing Chris Wilder in Morrison's has capped off quite a weird week so yeah not too bad thanks all in all.
0: Yeah Michael well if you ever need to chat um, you can always just (laughs) send me a message on WhatsApp that sounds quite a a turbulent (laughs) few days but hopefully all goes well with the knee and yeah hopefully you see Chris Wilder again in the near future and you're Local supermarket, Rudy Barlow, Have you had as turbulent a week, or has your week been more mellow by comparison?
2: M- mellow certainly doesn't really cover it. Turbulent, definitely closer. Not had any any physical injuries that need reconstruction, but emotionally, I've, it's been a bit of a battering of a week. I have to say.
0: Yeah, I was well. I wasn't quite forgetting, but I was um, overlooking just how traumatic. Mr. Messi's departure must have been for you as an avid follower of Barcelona. Well, I do feel like a figurative and perhaps a literal shoulder for you both to cry on, Uh, but we'll, we'll put that to one side, those traumas to one side, and we'll focus as much as possible on the latest developments across the four leagues we predominantly cover. You speak of that trauma, Barlow, and I'm sorry to put you through this, but we can't not mention a certain Mr. Messi. It would be reticent of us not to embark on a deep dive into his departure and what that means for Barcelona and indeed football as a whole. After 778 games, 672 goals, 266 assists and 34 trophies, Lionel Messi has left Barcelona. 21 years of domination, a career beyond the wildest of dreams and perhaps the most thrilling watch in the world on two feet. Before we dig into the gory details of the departure, is there a way in which we can try, Barlow and create a blurb for this monstrous footballing partnership between Lionel Messi and Iazograna? Well,
2: um, where where does one begin with Leo Messi? And we, we can try. I'm not sure how successful I'll be, but but I'll give it my best go. And I have to say, I genuinely never thought I'd have the task of summing up Messi's Barcelona career with the prospect of him going to another European club. It never, never really even crossed my mind, or if it did happen, even last season, even when he asked to leave there, Still remained a certain aspect of denial, which was heavily present in my mind, and I'm sure many, the minds of many others too. You mentioned those numbers there, that the headline acts of a stat sheet, which borders on the incredible, by which I mean it's it's hardly credible that he's managed those stats. These are career stats. The fact that he's going over a goal a game in terms of a goals scored and created, is just. Beyond nuts, it's it's incomparable in the current era. Really, thirty four trophies. He made a comment in his uh in his press conference that he wants to catch his good friend Danny Alves. But those those two are sort of common themes throughout the twenty first century in terms of the summit of world football, and and he's never really been away from that, which is in itself remarkable. It's a guy who missed the Champions League final in in two thousand and six with an injury but was very much present in the Champions League run at that age, at the age of about 19, and was still sort of in the semifinals a couple of years ago against Liverpool. Obviously, they came short, but he, he was still the inspiring factor in that Barcelona team. But the numbers don't really do him justice. At one point or another, we could say he's probably been the best footballer in the world at all positions in the final third he's been probably been the best winger in the world the best 10 the best forward the best sort of out and out number nine in a sense obviously he was playing false nine but that sort of reference point in attack and it's it's just so sort of hard to really quantify how how much he's done in the game because because we rarely see a, a player not only who's that good, but gets a system around him that enables him to, to be so successful. I think if you think of the trademarks, how few players leave an indelible memory of what they've done on the pitch in the minds of so many. With Messi, there's numerous of them. There's free kicks. You could take, you take curling free kicks into the top corner. You could take free kicks under the wall. Both of those were, for a period of time, it seemed like Messi couldn't miss them seemed like he perfected it at one point or another. There was the chips, there was the sort of dinks over the goalkeeper. It seemed like that was Messi's thing. And then at another point, there's the sort of slaloming run towards the edge of the box, sort of cuts in from the right, jinks in and out of people, and then curls it into the bottom corner. The, the way he even passes, the the Jordi Alba pass, the, the sort of dink over the defence that for four or five years, nobody has quite found a way to really defend. It's I mean, it it comes off pretty much at least once a game, and maybe they don't score, but it makes it to Jordi Alba. And after that, well, you're relying on on others, but it's almost like a, a trick shot in pool. It's it's insane how how regularly he manages to do that. And as of yet, hasn't found, hasn't been faced with an answer for it. I think for me, the thing that will stick out most. Is just how heroic Leo Messi was. I, I've never seen a footballer come up with a moment as often as he has. S- the sort of, you think of the sliding doors moment when a, a hero in a, a sort of superhero movie or, or even Shrek, um, when you're sort of sliding under those doors, the door is <laughs> shutting down and it just yeah. grabs his hat, nicks the hat from out the way of the doors. And, and gets away with the impossible escape. And that's that's what Leo Messi did. The 3-2 at the Bernabeu, that celebration with the shirt held up. Mm-hmm. That's that moment. There's the 2-0 against Real Madrid in the Champions League final where he, he goes all the way through the Real Madrid defence. That's that moment again. And th- there's, there's countless of those. I could go on for another five minutes, but I, I am taking up some time here. But whether it was a pass, a goal, a break, Leo Messi always gave you an action, a chance to win a match, or a chance to change the course of a match in pretty much every game. I I can barely recall a game where that hasn't happened. And on plenty of occasions, his teammates have come up short, but Leo Messi rarely did.
1: Leo Messi was, and almost certainly still is, the player every fan dreams of having, and every player works to obtain. How did we come to the point where the best player in Spain is being let go on a free?
2: Well, let's look at that situation in a, a macro point of from a macro point of view in terms of the Laporta presidency because we know he wanted to leave last year. He made that very clear. Bartomeu, uh despite creating all the factors that made him want to leave, did not let him leave, but Laporta comes in he's riding the crest of a wave from his election saying I am the man who can guarantee Messi's continuity. We we, we reached the summer and Leo Messi's contract has not been signed. There's no agreement, but it is taken as though Leo Messi will re-sign a deal. The weeks still keep passing and Juan Laporta says that he spends most of his summer assuring people that it's going to happen, that the deal is pretty much done, it's progressing well, both sides are, are in agreement that this, uh, this has to happen, then they will find a way. As these weeks pass, numbers come out and it transfers that Barcelona are in a lot more trouble than many thought. They're now at 110% of their income is being spent in wages. And that's a figure that needs to be at 70% to comply with the La Liga rules, which obviously quite a, quite a difference. Even without Leo Messi's wages, it's at 95%. But Everyone continues reporting that Messi will sign a new deal. Thursday, the 5th of August comes around. It's the date that's earmarked for his new contract signing. And sure enough, Leo Messi turns up in Barcelona with the intention of signing a contract. And I'll, I'll add some context here. Shortly before that, I think it was on the, the Tuesday, I believe, there's a CVC deal announced with La Liga, which is a 2.7 billion deal for 10% of the La Liga TV rights, essentially. So CVC buy 10% of La Liga's TV rights for the next, I think it's 40 to 50 years, essentially. They get the money of 10% of those rights. And in exchange, they pay $2.7 billion, which is distributed between the clubs. That effectively prohibits Real Madrid and Barcelona from joining the ESL, the Super League, sorry. I'm not entirely sure why that ties them so closely, but that is the sort of common narrative. Barcelona and Real Madrid aren't happy about that because they've obviously committed very heavily to the Super League. And after two days of speculation and noise about this, as I say, Jorge and Leo Messi arrive in Barcelona only for Joan Laporte to say that they cannot do it. It's impossible. And it all happens in a matter of hours that if he accepts the CVC deal, this is, he might lose some money down the line. But you keep Leo Messi. But you also lose the Super League, which, as I say, is something they've doubled down on so, so very much. And something that they, I think they believe it's the only way that they can compete with the Premier League clubs. If you reject the deal, you have the Super League still on the table. But to quote a meme, at
0: what cost? Messi's departure, I suppose, does perhaps pave the way for Celta Vigo's Aigo Aspas to become the player with arguably the most cultured left foot in Spain now. For several years, Aspas has been part of an underachieving side which just didn't have the team and the mechanisms around him to allow Aspas to reach the heights his ability deserved. Sounds slightly familiar, Barlow. Um, the arrival of manager Chacho Cudet last season may, however, provide Aspas with some hope that his team could challenge for one of La Liga's European spots. Now, Michael, you watched Celta vigo in person against Wolves in a preseason friendly recently at Molyneux. So I'm going to come to you first, and then maybe we can we can bring Barlow in as well here, but. How do we think Celta will look ahead of this season, Michael?
1: Yeah, I mean, what was interesting was I was able to get a really good look at the team that is probably expected to be similar to that starting against Atletico on the first game of the season. They went full strength uh, against in this friendly and they looked really good for the first 45 minutes. I was impressed with Iago Aspas in particular. It wasn't actually his playing the final third, which impressed me. It was actually all the stuff he does just getting severe moving forward. the so one touch passes, the movement, creating space for others. My one concern looking at them was they really tailed off in the second half, which was understandable because they'd only played one regional friendly before Wolves. However, they have made, I think it's only two or three signings this summer. None, Galan's probably the most high profile from Huesca, who did look good going forwards, but looked vulnerable defensively. And then Churchy came on and he looked like a player who is very low on confidence after nil-fated spell at Benfica. So I think, and from what I know, I know that they did really well to finish eighth last season, but if they're going to push higher, my suspicion on watching them was that they may need to bring in another couple of new faces. Yeah,
0: Paul, just ahead of that game that Michael references on Sunday, this coming Sunday afternoon against the reigning champions, Atletico de Madrid. How do you feel about Celta Vigo's prospects for this season
2: I'm excited yeah for a couple of months they were pretty revelatory in the league they were putting goals past people for fun and Chacho Chacho Coudet was the most exciting thing in the league for for a couple of months for me at least and they were operating with a sort of fiery tiger-like ferocity of pressing that really I mean we've seen it have success across the entirety of Europe, but it was it was similarly so hard to live with for other teams that it really brought them success. I will say they have had their share of trouble over the summer. Denis Suarez and Iago Aspas, as we mentioned, both share the same agent at Celta Vigo, and this is an agency that takes care of of a lot of Celta's younger talents. And over the summer, one of their talents was moved to Madrid without the, what shall we say, the acquiescence of President Carlos Mourinho, who is no shrinking violet either. But there was a big row essentially about it. Mourinho came out in public, made some comments, and Denis Suarez and Iago Aspas both tweeted about this in having issues with with, with that sort of, uh, with those comments, and later deleted that tweet. So not all is well in camp, but Chacho has an exciting team. There's a few holes, as you say, Michael. I do think defensively they can still be got at, and they're very much reliant on Renato Tapia and Iago Aspas really pulling the strings. Those are the two sort of points around everything else, around which everything else operates and moves. So I think they're maybe a little fragile to make Europe but as you say they were very nearly made uh, Europe last season in eighth place and that was with the terrible start under Oscar Garcia so very very interesting to watch one way or another.
0: Yeah well let's hope that Celta Vigo can make a charge for Europe and let's hope that they don't chacho slide down the table. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> oh no, that was dreadful. I'll see myself out, and I, I think on that note, I'll go and uh, fill up my water bottle before we return for an analysis of all the latest goings on in France. We'll be right back.
2: Bienvenue à Ligue 1. Several of the main contenders enjoyed slightly unconvincing starts on the first weekend of top flight French football. Lyon earned a point after f- falling behind to Brest. Lille battled back in the final 10 minutes to draw 3-3 away to Metz. PSG, without their their star star man, held on nervously to secure three points away at newly promoted Tra. And Monaco had to settle for a point against Nantes in the Principality. Given that a few observers have suggested Monaco would be the most likely to challenge PSG for the title this season... What did we learn from their season opener on Friday night against Antan Comboares Canaries, Ali?
0: Um, obviously, it's just 90 minutes and it's a very small sample size. But the main takeaway for me is that Monaco will probably need to improve if they are to genuinely challenge PSG for the title because PSG are, of course, the, the overwhelming favourites for the league and anybody who tries to argue otherwise is, is probably at it. Um, but they started really brightly against nantes Barlow. Um, they, they lined up in what could probably be loosely described as a nominal 4-4-2. We had starts for Alexander Neubel in goals. We had a start for Jean-Lucas as well, quite a coup, his signing from Lyon. And we had Myron Boadu, who's of course been signed from the Eredivisie in the Netherlands. They all started and all were involved in one way or another. And as I say, they started really well. Gelsen Martin scoring from Kyle Enrique's cross, and it looked for all the world like Monaco would go on and win comfortably. But at this point, I think we do have to give credit to Nantes under Antoine Comboari, as you say. Only just stayed up last season via the relegation playoff, but against Monaco, after that shaky start, they did steady themselves well. Um, credit in particular to Jean Charles Castierto and Nicolas Palua. The two of them I felt were solidly dominant at the back for Nantes. They played key roles in stifling and frustrating Monaco's attackers Um, so I I do have to raise that observation when speaking about Monaco's performance as a whole it wasn't like Monaco were dreadful far from it there were some really promising signs there but they were just probably guilty of overplaying it um, slightly too often in the build-up and when we think of Niko Kovac's Bayern Munich side they were also quite regularly guilty of overplaying it in the build-up. So that's maybe a slight reservation I would have moving forward. But generally speaking, there are positive signs there from Monaco. And they've also performed admirably over two legs against Sparta Prague in the Champions League qualifiers, setting up that intriguing, maybe even mouthwatering playoff tie with the Zerbies Shakhtar Donetsk. But focusing just on the league for the time being, um, I do have to give honorable mentions to Leon many. the 21 year old, had 17 ball recoveries. Nobody had more over the 90 minutes on Friday night. And also, I mentioned to Jean Lucas, I mentioned how his signing from Lyon has been quite widely regarded as a coup. Quite a few Lyon fans are unhappy that he has been moved on to, to Monaco, but I felt he was really heavily involved. He won six tackles and applied 10 successful pressures. He was really influential in helping Monaco to build out from the back, to take the ball from Monaco's defenders and and driving them forward. So a really impressive performance from him. And also I mentioned for Ismael Jacobs, he signed him from Köln in the Bundesliga. He came on for Kyle Enrique in the second half and also looked quite promising. Again, a young player uh, that Monaco have brought in along with Myron Boadu, another young player. Plenty of these young players sort of peppering and adding some more quality to what I think was already a solid Monaco team. But just having that point, that reservation, in terms of the build-up play was slightly overdone at times. And if Nantes can counter it, Nantes weren't exactly fantastic defensively last season. And, and I know that I've mentioned Castilletto and Palwa being solid at the back. They, they really were impressive, resolute But if Nantes can counter that slow build-up play, then I'm concerned for them in terms of would other teams also be able to to have similar joy in keeping out Monaco. But that said, they are probably favourites to challenge PSG for a reason, and that is the consistency, the continuity from last season. Out of all the big clubs in France, Monaco probably had the most stable Summer it's fair to say Kovac is there they've recruited sensibly they've not recruited sensationally but they've recruited sensibly and based as well on the performances over the two legs against Sparta Prague i think Monaco can have plenty to be optimistic about
1: yeah i was really impressed with their summer looking at marseille who started their season with a trip to olivier dalalio's swashbuckling Montpellier side, Olympic Marseille have been busy in the transfer market, bringing in Herson, Leonardo Baldari, Comrade de la Fuente, Paul Lopez, Matteo Genduzzi, and William Saliba, to name but a few. How did Sampioli's newly assembled team look on Sunday night at the Stade de la Mosson? They looked as... Beautifully chaotic
0: as they did towards the end of last season under (laughs) the beautifully chaotic Sam Pauli. Um, I've got in my notes here, I think Sunday night's game will perhaps serve as a bellwether for another beautifully chaotic season. I keep saying that phrase, beautiful chaos, but it does seem to encapsulate OM that phrase. They, They are a team that has so much quality in certain areas, Camera. Paye, so much quality there. Um, Pap Gay as well, a really exciting young player who looks to have made a step up again from last season to this season. His performance on Sunday night was was really impressive. But on the other hand, they're also a team that that looks quite vulnerable at times, that can look quite soft at times. So (laughs) when you take that quality and you take such extensive areas that require improvement, you you are going to get a team that will score plenty and concede plenty. And we saw that on Sunday night, obviously going down 2-0, two soft goals, I felt, um, from a defensive perspective. And they gave themselves so much work to do, but work they did. Um, I think before I do go on to just assess what Pauli did to change things and to assess just how the game swung from one side to the other so drastically. I do have to give credit to Olivier Dalolio's Montpellier side. Dalolio was obviously at Brest last season. Brest started so well under Dalolio last season. They played this vertical style, quite an open-minded and sort of swashbuckling approach to, to attacking and we saw that again from Montpellier on Sunday night. Um, they really look like they could be an entertaining watch. They've also got Gaetan Laborde and Andy Delore and Ter Savani still to come back in. He was unavailable on Sunday night, but Ter Savani to come back in. They've got Elia Wahi as well, who looks to be a really exciting young player. So, had Marseille lost on Sunday night, I don't think that in itself would have been. Disastrous. Um, but what was slightly concerning was the ease with which Montpellier were able to exploit Marseille in the wide areas. Marseille looked really vulnerable out wide. They looked really vulnerable in transition, and I think that's perhaps a byproduct of the quite complex formation. Sampoury opted for it. It's really difficult to try and pin down what formation they were going for because it was very fluid, and that ultimately did help them to turn the game around, but it did also leave them slightly exposed. So much space between the lines for Montpellier to exploit. And as I said, they did experience a lot of joy in the wide areas and in between the lines. But that said, and that is a lot to say, I know, but that said, Sampaoli managed to turn it around. How did he turn it around? Well, a combination of tweaks, some more nuanced than others that were made by Pauli. we started to see overlapping centre-backs, William Saliba and Luan Perej, um, both making their Marseille debuts, both to fairly successful effect, made forward runs, overlapping runs, as far as the, the opposition penalty box. So that was one factor. There was also more focus on exploiting the areas between the lines, which Montpellier themselves had done to really good effect in the first half. But we saw Marseille doing that more in the second half, especially on the left-hand side. And then we saw the pivotal introduction of Dario Benedetto um, in about the 60th minute. He was able to serve as the focal point. Dimitri Paye, who had been more central up until that point, was then able to drift more to the left. He was able to play more of a free role. And that really helped Pae and Conrad De La Fuente together to really isolate Montpellier's defenders. In particular, Junior Sombia, who looked really exposed in that second half. So credit to Sampalli for making those tweaks, for turning the game around. And I mentioned as well De La Fuente briefly there, Conrad De La Fuente acted as the sort of auxiliary left wing-back, if you like, and they made Cengiz Under operating as the auxiliary right wing back on the other side. The two of them were really influential. They had a lot of involvement in the game. Cengiz Under, 10 touches in the opposition penalty area, 16 progressive carries and five carries into the opposition penalty area. Six shots, which was equaled only by Dimitri Pai. And then Conrad De La Fuente, I wasn't too sure how he would fare based on what I've heard from other people, but he was really positive um, 11 touches in the opposition penalty area, 14 progressive carries, four carries into the penalty area, and 10 pressures applied, five of which were successful. So those numbers are really positive. And it feels like if Marcy are going to continue with this sort of difficult to pinpoint formation, the two of them are going to have potentially really influential seasons. Um, and also we still have the fact that Arcadius Milik is still to come back into this Marseille team. Um, He's out with a knee injury until September, potentially. But I feel he's a much better player, obviously, than Dario Benedetto. If we can have him there as the focal point in this Marseille team, I think Marseille step up not just one, but potentially two or maybe even three levels with him rather than Benedetto. But credit to Benedetto, who played a key role in enabling Marseille to be more fluid and then enabling Dimitri Paye to be as wonderful as he was in helping Marseille to come back just one more start, Marseille won 14 points after falling behind last season only three teams won more they've already registered three points from a losing position after one game so maybe this will be a hallmark of Sam Pauli's side. On RMC, the Monégasque radio station, when talking about this Marseille team said on more than one occasion c'est de la folie douce and there are several ways to translate this but the most appropriate translation in this instance would probably be sweet madness and that mirrors what I was seeing earlier about beautiful chaos this Marseille team are going to be brilliant to watch we'll wrap up our analysis of France there and turn our attention to Italy where there has been plenty going on and it's not all the most positive news We'll be right back. In Serie A, the build-up to the new season has been dominated by one team, the Scudetto holders, Inter Milan. Yet, sadly for the Nerezuri, that extensive coverage has been for all the wrong reasons. Since lifting the title in May, they have lost their inspirational manager, Antonio Conte, their key player, Akraf Hakimi, and now find themselves on the verge of losing their talismanic striker, Romelu Lukaku. The finger of blame is directed solely at Inter's owners, Suning Holdings Group, and quite rightly so, in all honesty. Just diving a little bit deeper into the quagmire, Michael, what exactly has prompted this summer of huge upheaval at the San Siro?
1: Yeah, I think what's prompted it this summer is the pandemic. It's been the main catalyst in a volatile market for Inter Milan. And their owners, Suning Holdings Group, like you said, they were formed in 1990 by a Chinese businessman called Zhang Jindong who created a retail business empire in China. And for 30 or so years, they've become a multi-billion pound business where they sell a range of goods similar to what you'd find on Amazon in China almost a 1,000, but they also have thousands of stores in China and in 2020 ranked second in the country for online sales. So this is a huge, huge business that taking charge of into no mugs. However, the impact of the pandemic and the decline in retail is certainly not being solely e-commerce means they've been hit really hard. They've had huge debt loads and they're at risk of liquidity and has led to multi-billion loans, mainly from the state, but also from private lenders as well. So I guess then we're looking at sort of how it affects Inter. And I think we have to go all the way back to when they took over in 2016. And key to that takeover was Stephen Zhang, uh, son of Zhang Jindong. Stephen Zhang's influence at the club increased when he became president in 2018. And he oversaw tremendous growth in his tenure at the club. By 2019, the Nerazori's value as a club had increased more than any teams in Europe in the past financial year and they were now worth over $600 million. However, in line with this and in line with what's been a trend for Soon Holdings Group, probably since their inception, excessive spending, uh, Inter Milan followed suit and bought lavishly. And 2019 saw the arrival of Antonio Conte, like you said, on a multi-million pound year contract. Huge signings such as Romello Lukaku were followed by the likes of Nico Barella and Akraf Hakimi. And they were supplemented with older players on big wages, such as Diego Codin, Arturo Vidal, and Alexis Sanchez. Of course, Sanchez's first year was um, subsidized by Manchester United, but he did sign on after that. And looking at the impacts of the pandemic and what it's had on Inter, and it's not just the pandemic, but it's similar to seeing and Holden's group. They've racked up huge losses and debts. And this increasing trend of volatility has been personified in the behaviour of Steven Zhang in the sense that at the start, he was really sort of riding the wave in 2018. He was the first Asian member on the European club association executive board, something we've come to know recently through the European super league and following the pandemic, he had conflicted with the owner of the Serie A calling him a clown on Instagram, whilst also (laughs) conflicting with Antonio Conte leading to almost leading to the gaffer's departure in 2020 However, what followed was this hugely successful season last time out. They won the title at a canter, essentially. And whilst all this was happening, it was overshadowed by losses of over 100 million euros the season before. And also in the background was the folding of Jiangsu Suning, a team owned in China by a subsidiary of Suning Holdings Group, uh, Suning Appliance Group. And they really made a splash back in 2016 when they signed Ramirez from Chelsea and they signed Alex Teixeira from Shakhtar Donetsk, famously taking him from the hands of Liverpool, who were on the verge of signing him. And they, won, they finally won the league title in 2020, but by March 2021, they had folded. And to put on top of that in this stressful year, Steven Zhang is wanted for debts so of $250 million on his own in Hong Kong. Suning as a company reported the up to 2 billion in debts and Zhang Jindong, the founder has resigned as chairman and now only holds an honorary role. So I guess sort of looking at what this means for Inter, there are genuine fears among supporters that they risk going bankrupt and f- that they will follow the fate of Jiangsu Suning. And whilst the state, Chinese state who have lended a lot are applying pressure, there doesn't seem to be any immediate risk on Inter Milan's existence in the near future. Financial Times reported Stephen Zhang will be prepared to take huge losses on the club rather than see the club go bankrupt. And James Horncastle echoed this on the Totally European Football podcast. But what's interesting is now is loans have come in from elsewhere. In May, Inter Milan signed a $336 million deal with US-based Tree Capital Management Group. They provided a massive loan. And their focus has been preservation because like AC Milan a couple of years ago, if Inter Milan can't repay these loans and sooning look in really bad shape, Tree capital management may take over Inter Milan. And then this is why we're starting to already see the huge cost cutting. So Conte, Lukaku and Hikimi have all left, and Mar- well, Lukaku's about to. Lautaro Martinez may also rumours with him joining Tottenham for 60 million and very budgetary replacements have come in, in place. Simone Inzaghi's come in, who's an excellent manager, did wonders at Nap- uh, last CO over the seasons he was there, but doesn't hold the same pedigree as Antonio Conte for sure. Hakan Celanoglu's come in on a free, which actually seems a stupid business, contrary to much of what we've just been discussing. And then Edin Dzeko is being heavily rumored to be joining as a replacement for Romello Lukaku, which I really hope is not what they see as a like for like replacement, but would be indicative <laughs> of the financial state they may be in and I guess it's hard to project these things over the next year or two but I think what we will see for Inter Milan over the next season is the squad might look on the whole quite similar but it will look like a squad that when they play in all their key players except those key players will have already departed for this money to try and help Inter Milan survive and Going forwards, it's looking like it could be quite an ugly season. We're going to have, there's already been fans protesting at games. That's only going to ramp up following the expectations being built so highly. I don't think it's, it's going to be a very long time before we see massive arrivals at the club like we got used to. And I guess on a final note, there are some players that Inter Milan are still looking to hold on to. the likes of Nico Barella in particular, instrumental in Italy's Euro 2020 win what prospects are there for him now is that it is a sinking ship as it stands and it will become harder and harder to hold on to these talents and emerging talents, such as Bastoni, as it goes forward. and That's going to be so painful for Inter Milan fans. So yeah, signs aren't looking good, but there's a long way to go and it will be interesting to see what Tree Capital Management Group, their involvement will be in, if it helps stabilize them.
2: Certainly that um, Dzeko replacement for Lukaku does... Echo in my mind of when Brathwaite came in as a Suarez replacement midway through the season. Not quite the same. I'll
0: not, I'll not hear any Martin Brathwaite disrespect. Really, Barbo, <laughs> thank you.
2: Ah, you're part of fan club these days. <laughs> uh,
0: me, 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 Pierre Hoybier and Martin Brathwaite are riding the pierre Mio Hoibier hype train baby.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, over the summer, The concerning trend of key players departing has not been exclusive to Inter. Italy's top flight as a whole has seen an exodus with several stars leaving for financially greener pastures, throw in a Serie A managerial merry-go-round, and it looks like there will be very little in the way of continuity from last season. That said, do we think there are any teams that can actually benefit from
1: all this change? I guess the logical answer to the question would be to those with continuity and the team which springs to mind is Atalanta. The manager, Gian Piero Gasparini, is entering his sixth season. Eight of, In the meantime, eight of last season's top 10 teams have changed manager, with the only other surviving manager being Stefano Pioli, who I think has a massive task to try and replicate the excellent work he did, especially in the first half of the season with AC Milan last year. So I expect Atalanta to... Be up there and competing for the title, I think they won't there will no longer be underdogs in that respect, having back-to-bat back 3rd place finishes. I think, you know, although they've lost key players in Romero and Galini to Tottenham Hotspur, they've replaced them well. Demiral's a great signing from Juventus and Musso is 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 certainly an upgrade from Udinese replacing Galini. And I think in terms of the managerial appointments, there's two that really stand out. The first one goes without saying. Uh, Allegri at Juventus who's hugely successful in his first stint. A few Euro 2020 winners are there and they finished the season really well. Of course you had Chiesa, Benucci and Chiellini all vital to Italy's Euro 2020 win and Juventus finished the season strongly winning the Coppa Italia and uh, despite risking a top four finish managed to achieve it in the end. The one concern with them I would say is that the transfer window has been very quiet. There are rumours of Locatelli signing and Miro returning which would be a big boost, although I'm a bit more unsure about pianists. I do think central midfield will be Allegri's major concern because I think at the moment you've got a bunch of players who have come from high profile clubs without that sturdiness or consistency to help propel them to the next level. And I think there's a real absence of stability there, but the second one, and this is one that I want to look at most is Napoli. Um, I think it's the most exciting appointment in that we're seeing Spalletti join Napoli. And I just think that Napoli have such a a squad that is so suited to Spalletti's expansive style. And in their striker, Victor Simian have the potential star of Serie A this season. He will be one of the favourites of the Golden Boots alongside Immobile and Ronaldo. But Ossimian should really thrive in a Spalletti system. If you look at Spalletti's last two seasons in Serie A, they were with Roma in the 2016-17 season, where he helped them qualify for the Champions League. And then Inter Milan the following season, where he also helped them qualify for the Champions League for the first time in a number of years. Now, in both of those campaigns, they're leading marksmen for each team. It was Gekko for Roma and Icardi for Inter Milan. They both won the Golden Boots under Spalletti with 29 goals each, which was their career best also. And I think Laurentis, the owner, has been looking... I think he's been looking for a long-term appointment since Sari, And for some reason or another... It's taken them so long to get Spalletti. He's just seen this perfect fit. He's just been in waiting. He's not taken a job now for a couple of seasons. And now they have him. I think they could really push for the top four and even be dark horses for the title. I mean, the formation, although Spalletti is much more expansive and much more attack-minded, it will still be a 4-2-3-1. And that's something that we did see a lot of under Ancelotti and Gennaro Gattuso. And I think they, Napoli, have a lot of expressive players and I think it will really suit them. I think there's, Maybe one question mark, and that is over the future of Lorenzo Insigne, of course, another Euro 2020 winner. Going to keep banging that drum whilst we're talking about Serie A for the first time. With a year left on his contract, he's rumoured to be looking elsewhere. I know Dimarcio uh, the famous transfer journalist, was saying that there was quite big news on that tonight, but as we're recording. We don't know too much about that, but Insignia apparently met for talks today. So we'll have to see what happens there, but that could, that would be a huge departure. I think Insignia is set for a massive season for Spalletti, really impressive Euros. And I think he's just got a manager who will suit his style of play a lot more. And they'll begin their season on August the 21st against Venezia. That's when the Serie A will start. Of course, in UK it will be with BT this season, which is another Exciting thing for UK viewers, maybe making it a bit more accessible. Mm-hmm. And Venezia returned to the first Serie A for the first time since 2002. And in that time, they've collapsed, reformed, and come all the way back up the pyramid since then. So, yeah, it'll be really exciting, but a great opportunity for Napoli to get off to a fast start.
0: Glorious, Michael. Thank you for that comprehensive roundup. Really sets the tone nicely for what promises to be an intriguing season in Serie A, despite the exodus of players which you mentioned earlier. I would just correct myself and my grammatical mistakes. I cringed as I said. Me, Pierre Hoybier and Martin Brathwaite are all aboard the Pierre-Emil Hoibier hype train. It should, of course, have been Pierre-Emil Hoybier, Martin Brathwaite and I are all aboard The hype train, of course, and that coupled with my mispronunciation of Iago Aspas's name earlier means that I'm probably one strike away from being out and and Barlow and Michael just taking the podcast on themselves. So without too much further hesitation, I'm going to wrap up the Italian section and we'll turn our attention to Germany and the Bundesliga. We'll be right back.
1: We'll go into the new Bundesliga season with a host of clubs under new management. At the Allianz Arena, Julian Nagelsmann will be looking to guide Bayern Munich to a 10th league title in a row, having arrived from RB Leipzig in the closed season. We're still in the early days of Nagelsmann's tenure, but what are your expectations for his time in charge at Germany's most successful club? I think before we delve
0: too deeply into how I expect Nagelsmann's time to go, at least in the early stages, it probably makes sense for us to take stock of what Bayern Munich have achieved over the last decade in the league and how they fared generally last season. Just as a sort of reminder, Bayern have, of course, won the last nine Bundesliga titles. Their monopoly has been almost absolute In that sense certainly over the last decade Um, and then last season as well they finished 13 points clear of leipzig they only lost four times in the entire league campaign picking up 99 points in 34 games falling just short of the hundred point mark um in the cup only reached the second round which was fairly surprising and then of course they fell to psg in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. But all in all, it was it was a very successful 18 months for Hansi Flick, who has of course now moved on to manage the national team. And I think it's important to mention what Flick achieved at Bayern, certainly in those 18 months, because Nagosman in a sense has I think it's important for him to 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 build on that and not make wholesale Changes And I don't think Nagelsmann intends to make wholesale changes. He was speaking to Kicker recently and he observed that he was planning to make small changes rather than revolutionary changes at Bayern Munich. In that sense, I think we will probably see the characteristically nuanced tweaks that we've become accustomed to seeing from Julian Nagelsmann, but we'll see them within this Bayern Munich Squads. He then elaborated on what he will look to bring to this Bayern Munich team. He spoke about effective counter-pressing, upping the tempo of the game, using long balls specific to the opponent, and getting players into optimum positions in the attacking third. Now, for anyone who's watched anything that Julian Nagelsmann's teams have produced over the last few years, that won't come as any great surprise. And I think it does come back to the fact that this Bayern team Already has a good system in place, so we'll see slight tweaks in terms of the summer transfer business. Not that it's cause for concern, but it's not an entirely convincing window from Bayern's point of view. David Alaba, Jerome Boateng, and Javi Martinez have all departed. You could argue that David Alaba is probably the only player out of those three who Bayern would maybe really have wanted to have held on to. But still, it's it's too key players, and one player who's maybe not key, but brings a little bit of quality to the side. They've brought in Diogo Meccano, 22 years of age, from RB Leipzig. His quality is is absolutely there. We, we don't need to speak about that. And they've also brought in left-back Omar Richards from Reading. But we haven't really seen Bayern look to pad out this squad, and certainly one of the issues last season, and it did arguably cost them in the Champions League when they had to play triple moting rather than Lewandowski who was unavailable for that game is is the lack of depth this Bayern team, the quality in the starting 11 and the quality of their first three or four subs is unquestionable, it's one of the best starting 11s in world football but there isn't a depth to this squad and they've had a few transfer markets a few transfer windows to try and resolve that, to try and pad out the squads, but we're not seeing it. And I know that a lot of clubs are limited financially because of the coronavirus pandemic and because of the loss of earnings caused by the coronavirus pandemic. But still, there hasn't been enough activity, in my opinion, on Bayern's part, to try and pad out the squad, to try and reinforce the squad with not the highest of quality of replacements, but still fairly high-quality replacements. And I'm sorry to sound like a slightly broken record, but we do have to highlight the failures on the part of Hasan Salihamidzic, the sporting director at Bayern Munich. His differences with Hansi Flick ultimately played a quite significant role in Flick's departure. Um, Apparently, as well, Salihamidzic didn't really see eye-to-eye with Hermann Gerland and Miroslav Koza, who were also on the coaching staff at Bayern Munich, they've since left. And to what extent that's down to their relationship, their slightly unhealthy relationship, if reported to be believed, with Salihamisic. To what extent their departures were down to that remains to be seen. But I'm just slightly disappointed by Bayern's transfer activity over the last few transfer windows and we're seeing a sort of continuation of that theme this summer. We're hearing reports as well that Nagelsmann and Sally Hamasich are having differences of opinion and to an extent that's that's totally natural your manager and your sporting director or your coach and your sporting director are not always going to agree on everything so I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that's not just people looking for a story that isn't there. But it's maybe something to monitor as we go forward. Um, And just expanding, I'm sounding like the forecaster of doom, and and I don't want to forecast such doom because Bayern are absolutely favourites for the Bundesliga, but I think we do just need to caveat that status with the disappointing and fairly quiet transfer window and also pre-season. How much can we take from pre-season? I guess we don't really know until the season actually starts, but Bayern have suffered three losses and drawn one game across four pre-season friendlies all over Cannes and Uri Hunis, members of the, the hierarchy at Bayern, the quite important and influential hierarchy at Bayern, ever-present, omnipresent, you might say. They did not look too happy during Bayern Munich's 3-0 loss to Napoli. And... On the one hand, you can say, yes, they've largely been playing fringe players, young players. They haven't been playing their first team players with the exception of the first half against Napoli. But by and large, it's been the younger players or the fringe players who have played. But that, in a way, reinforces what I was saying earlier about the lack of depth in the squad. If they're losing 3-0 to Napoli, if they've suffered what is apparently the worst preseason buying i have ever suffered like going into a season... What does that tell us about the backup options? It tells us that if Bayern suffer a few injuries, if Bayern don't invest in some more higher quality replacements, and and I get that finances are limited, but still, if Bayern aren't active in the sort of final phases of the transfer window and they do suffer a few injuries, maybe it won't be plain sailing for Julian Nagelsmann. Also, as well, it is a new manager. It is Nagelsmann's first job at a mega club, at a super club. And while Nagelsmann's a renowned tactical innovator, his contraptions, shall we call them, on the training ground are mind-boggling. But it's still his first job at a really big club. And as good as we know Nagelsmann is, this is relatively uncharted territory for him. So... I don't think it's a given that Bayern will go on and dominate the league this season. They probably should, given the quality of their starting 11, notwithstanding the lack of quality when you look beyond sort of 14 or 15 players in that team. I just think we we do need to caveat that favourite status with all of these observations that I'm making. In terms of style, how how do we expect Bayern to... Line up Well, I mentioned earlier what Nagelsmann was saying about making slight tweaks and based on those comments, I would be surprised to see him depart too significantly from the 4-2-3-1 formation that Hansi Flick utilised to such devastating effect during his time in charge and Nagelsmann himself has spoken about this desire to play a 4-3-3 and he has spoken about really maximising the potential of the wingers, Serge Gnabry, Leroy Sané, and Kingsley Coman. So I suppose a switch, a slight switch to a 4-3-3 would make sense. It would really allow those players to perhaps maximise or improve further their numbers. But having said that, Nagelsmann likes to drill tactical instructions into his players so that they are capable of playing in several different formations. So while I think we will probably see a 4-3-3 to start with, I think we will see the occasional switch to a three at the back. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Tangai Nianzu starting alongside either Nicolas Sura or Lucas Hernandez as the sort of sitting two in a trident back three, if you like, with dial and meccano just in front, of those two. A few people seem to think that we might see this at some point from Nagelsmann's Bayern Munich. Um, Regardless of what system Nagelsmann opts for, and I think it will be this 4-3-3 with the occasional switch to a back three, it's going to be intriguing to watch Bayern. I don't think they'll be totally dominant, but having said that, I still think, despite all the reservations I've raised in this section, I still think they will be Bundesliga champions for the 10th season in a row come the end of the season. Just a point as well on that potential back three if Uwe McCannell does sit in front of a sort of sitting back two. If you like, Uwe Mekano is in the 93rd percentile for progressive carries for central defenders in the top five leagues across Europe, and he's in the 95th percentile for progressive carrying distance. So I think he would be really well suited to that role just ahead of two deeper line centre-halves in a back three, almost rendering up McCarroll a sort of holding midfielder of sorts like we saw with Andreas Christensen for Denmark at the Euros at times. I think that could be something to watch out for. Whatever happens, Bundesliga will be on Sky Sports. An intriguing deal. Quite how many games they'll show per week remains to be seen, but hopefully they deliver a number of games for us to enjoy. On that note, I think we will wrap up for this episode thank you very much to you the listener Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones thank you to the two of you and we'll be back in a fortnight's time for another episode until then take care goodbye